We live in a time where healthcare systems need to provide more services within existing resources. While it is a wicked problem, it can be solved with a little creativity, passionate staff, new ideas and a little help from your local clinical innovation agency. Transforming Healthcare will explore the story of one such agency, Clinical Excellence Queensland. We talk to the people behind the work, who day in and day out are partnering with health services, consumers and other organisations to evolve the system. Today we're sitting down with Associate Professor John Allen. He heads up one of the more trickier named branches of CEQ, it's a mental health, alcohol and other drugs branch. John's also CEQ's most dapper executive, probably most dapper gentleman. Now, John, thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. No problems at all. John's sitting here in one of his best ties this morning. John, um, for people outside of CEQ, can you briefly describe what the Mental Health, Alcohol and Other Drugs branch does for the Queensland Health System? So the MHAOD branch, the Mental Health, Alcohol and Other Drugs branch, is a part of CEQ and so we're obviously very interested in quality and uh, achievement for people. But it also is a very large part of CEQ and a very large part of Queensland Health in that we provide support and functions for all of the mental health and drug and alcohol services throughout Queensland Health. We also have a large role in national policy. I try to think of it as three things that we do. One is that we really look about policy and how that works, so strategy, planning and policy for services. We also have the Office of the Chief Psychiatrist that looks at running the Mental Health Act and as part of our quality and safety piece. And then we have a clinical systems and collection performance unit which really looks at running the data, so we do all the national reporting, but we also support CIMA, which is the clinical database for all mental health and drug and alcohol interactions in Queensland Health. You're a kind of different to some of the other branches in CEQ where their chiefs run the branch. Obviously, you sit alongside John Riley, who's the chief psychiatrist at the moment, who looks after the Mental Health Act 2016. How do you guys work together and how, how does that operate on a day-to-day basis? We have an interesting relationship, which is a really good one, actually. John and I have worked together before, but he's the chief psychiatrist, and as such, he actually reports to the minister for responsibility for the Act. And in that role, I'm actually a deputy of the chief psychiatrist, so I'm his delegate. Uh, so we actually share the on-call of that, that bit, but I, I report to him. But in the branch, he's called the chief mental health alcohol and drugs officer, and he reports to me as the executive director, so I'm his boss most of the time. Uh, except that sometimes we share the, the other arrangements. So it's interesting, but but a good one. Clearly works with some of the results that mental health and the alcohol and other drugs branch have had over the last few years. What are some of the biggest challenges facing us at the moment? Obviously, we've had COVID in the last 18 months or so. Is that, that probably your biggest challenge at the moment? I think that the response to COVID is probably the biggest challenge for us. So there's been, and I'm sure you've seen in the news, and I don't have to talk about this, an enormous increase in people with mental health problems and mental health distress. And that's really related, not so much to, in, in this country, not so much, of course, to people directly getting COVID, although there are quite significant mental health problems related to COVID, getting COVID infection, but uh, really about the economic stress and the lack of certainty for people and the social disruption that we've, we've faced, particularly lockdowns and so on. So there's been an increase quite an increase in mental health presentations, particularly emergency presentations, but a general increase across the board for people seeking counselling and help for mental health problems. So that's been a challenge to us in an already overloaded system. How have you managed to divert your resources during that time? Has some of the existing work had to be not put aside so much as placed on hold? or have you... I think some things have been placed on hold, but on the other hand, 
Actually, for us, COVID's been an opportunity to actually keep developing the programs that we need to develop. So we're going to help respond some of the reform that's already been part of our work in the system. Let's just continue to plough on with uh, with COVID as its backdrop. You're probably uh, one of the torchholders, I think, for CEQ in some of the work that you've done with co-design with consumers and clinicians. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Jacaranda Place, the adolescent extended treatment facility. So, look, I think that's been a really fantastic piece of work. It's a long story. I don't know how long you want to get the potted version of, but this work came from a particular commission of inquiry into the Barrett Adolescent Centre, which was a, I've certainly been operating for a while, then it had been closed. And then, unfortunately, there were three suicides from people who had been occupants there. And there was an inquiry and a recall to actually rebuild and rebuild that whole system, not just the building. And one of the things that had been very evident in that was that it was about the role of families, that the power of families had had to, to work on that. So from the very start of that work, we actually reached out to families who'd been involved and families and young people who'd been involved and decided that everything that we did in that reform piece would be in a co-design model. That applied not just to Jacaranda House, but also to a number of other building projects, but also to the models of service and the whole reform piece that we needed to bring to youth mental health. So we were able to use those people with lived experience. We are also able to reach out through our partners in education to actually involve a whole lot of uh, high school students and young people who might be potential users and other. So a very broad range of society as part of that co-design. For example, we held workshops using some of the virtual technology that people more or less associate with, you know, training in surgery or something. We actually did mock-ups of the entire place and had young people come in and walk through it and tell us about how it would work and how it would not work. And one really interesting anecdote was that we had a mock-up of a bedroom and it had a desk and the way that we were sitting at a desk here and so on. And one of the young people said, oh, nobody sits at desks anymore. We all have laptops and we sit on our bed to do our homework. I'm thinking, oh, okay, that's different. So we actually made a study look slightly different to the way that we might have done in a traditional design. And there's many, many more examples of how we made it work for young people. So really proud of that. And that actually won a number of design awards, particularly for the co-design. We had really great cooperation from our architects and builders who really embraced the project of co-design. And of course, co-design has been something that's been around in mental health for over 30 years. I I actually did my first co-design building in um, 1991. So uh, it's, you know, it's a long tradition of that work. We sort of moved neatly from Jacaranda Place as well, and now we're working on the new residential rehab centre up in Rocky as well. I think that's due for completion towards the end of this year. The end um, of this year, yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that project? So that's a project that I think has uh, been long overdue for Queensland Health. This is a project where we're building a drug and alcohol residential rehabilitation centre in Rockhampton. There hasn't been very much service there before. There's been quite a dearth of service, and that came actually from uh, a visit that I was lucky enough to do with the Premier at the beginning of the Action on Ice situation where we actually Premier went round to a number of sites and we listened to people talking about their experiences with drugs, particularly ice, and what it had done for them. And it was a very moving experience, actually, to, to hear the stories of those families. And as a result of that, there was then an election commitment announcement that we would build this drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre in Rockhampton. It's been a very interesting journey in that one of the things, of course, that we need to do something like that in the community, not everybody in the community understands the importance of it. So we had to work through quite a lot of community objection and do a lot of explanation and hold public meetings to try to get that, that support. So we had a lot of supporters. We had a lot of people who were quite ambivalent about it and 
So we had to work through quite a process to get that that community support, and our thanks to the DG and other people who, who took some of the some of those very interesting meetings. But now we actually have that project nearly completed, and what's really great about that is that it's a live-in place. People can go there and get their rehab. It's also going to have connected family units, so people who've got young children actually don't have to have their treatment interrupted. They can take the young children; they'll be safe there, and work on that. There's also a community piece as well. So we've actually built a community facility for for uh, adolescents in Rockhampton, which wasn't there before. So we've got now all age ranges, all sort of ways of life covered to be able to do that. It's got a detox centre and it's going to be a conjoint project between an NGO provider, our lives lived well and ourselves, and the HHS are very excited about that. And, you know, I think it's going to be a really great professional professional way of doing it. Fantastic. You mentioned there, obviously, ICE. In your title of your branch, you talk about alcohol and other drugs. What are some of the other drugs that are causing challenges or that your branch are working on at the moment? So I think everybody needs to remember that the number one drug, which is a problem in our society, is alcohol. So alcohol fueled violence, but also, of course, not just the physical effects of alcohol, but there are also significant mental health effects of alcohol. So the contribution of alcohol to depression, to anxiety, they're generally just feeling unwell, as well as its contribution to social things like domestic violence, abuse, and so on. And of course, alcohol is often a permissive factor in suicide attempts as well. People often, under the disinhibition of alcohol, can you know, engage in risky and dangerous behaviour. So alcohol is the number one drug in our society. And then we've just actually commissioned a survey of, of illicit drug users who actually reported that marijuana was actually their number one number one issue, as well as ice and, and heroin and, and you know, narcotics as well. And so those are quite significant issues in our society as well. And your branch also heads up on behalf of Queensland Health, the Suicide Prevention Task Force. That's been going on for a number of years now. What, what sort of progress are we making in that space at the moment? Well, we're not, in terms of numbers, we're not making as big a progress as we would like to make. So the, the number of people who die by suicide in Queensland is higher than the national average. And we particularly know, of course, that that's exaggerated in some rural settings and particularly for our Indigenous communities. But that doesn't mean that pockets are immune and young people are also, of course, being a focus. So over the last three years, the, the rate has remained about the same, which is good that it's not increasing, but bad that it's not decreasing, of course. So we've made quite a lot of progress in terms of trying to look at alternative pathways for people when they're in suicidal distress. So instead of having to go to a busy emergency department, we're now looking at uh, safe spaces and alternatives. We're looking at a way we can divert that. We're doing a progress to the Gold Coast around that. And we've also gone to partnership with Beyond Blue and other NGOs to do what's called a Wayback Service. So we're actually offering very good and comprehensive follow-up for people who've presented with suicidal ideas or a suicide attempt and the way of doing that. And we've also adopted in Queensland a program that we call Zero Suicide in Healthcare. So one of the things, it's a complicated way to explain it, but we know that if you come in contact with healthcare, about a quarter of the people who go on to die by suicide have had contact with healthcare systems in the last week to month at times. Now, we think that that's an opportunity for intervention, and so we should change that. So we're trying to look at the notion that if you do make contact with healthcare, that we should decrease that risk of suicide to zero. So we've been looking at how we talk to people, how we assess them, but also solutions that we find for them. So we're really looking at the way that our system works so the person just doesn't go in and get assessed and referred, but they actually walk out with a solution. We actually look at their family circumstances, something that takes away, that really makes a change in their circumstances and is more protective to the situation they've been in. So that's involved a lot of practice change and training, and uh, people have really embraced that. Fantastic. 
One of the things that you've mentioned now a couple of times is your relationships with the NGOs. I think of all of the CEQ branches and your work with consumers and your reliance, I suppose, on those partnerships with NGO groups is significant, I would say. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's really at the heart of what we do. We've always tried to think about our consumers and carers as the people who are, you know, the various terms, service users and so on, but and families and so on. But we think about those people who have a lived experience of the mental health, drug and alcohol, suicide issues. They are at the heart of all that we do. And we actually remind ourselves in every introduction about that because we're really there to provide a service. They're our, they're our people. And we work with the HHS and with our clinicians and, of course, with our bureaucrats and funders and everybody to make sure that we're focused on getting an outcome for that. And so for us, a lot of it's not just about what the formal health system delivers, but also that we have NGO partners. So we have non-government organisations as partners. Often they're able to uh, use the lived experience people in different ways that we can, and they often have better community links and different ways of working and less formal ways of working. But we also have very formal partnerships where they actually run some of our community care units and some of our community you know, structures and so on. So, so we think that's a really great partnership because we get a, a much broader view about that. And I'm really pleased uh, just to let you know, and hopefully this will come out more formally after the podcast is released because it's going to happen next week, is that we've actually now just revitalised our community engagement organisation. So for people with lived experience, we've actually now gone back and rebuilt that organisation. So we'll have a very strong lived experience advice giving us formal advice, whereas before we've that organisation had been missing for a while, we've brought it back. So we're now going to have a much more formal role for people with lived experience to, to play in our governance as well. So we're really looking forward to that. You've been heading up the branch now for, for a number of years. What, what's your best achievement or your, you know, the most fondly uh, remembered achievement for the branch? Well, there's a lot of them, actually, and I probably would say that, in general, in areas like mental health and drug and alcohol, there's a lot of stigma. Uh, people who uh, experience those problems experience stigma in the community. People who work in there can often be stigmatised even within their own services. So people think, oh, why are you working in that area? Those people aren't worth it. You should be doing this or you should be doing that. I'm probably my biggest achievement and the thing I'm proudest of in my career is trying to work on on the reputation and getting rid of that stigma in making mental health a good place to be, a good place to work and a place where we can actually have achievements. So all the achievements that we have had, all those achievements are to me about that social justice, about getting dealing with stigma and helping people who've got serious problems, who've got serious difficulties, having a better life, the road to recovery. So to me, that whole journey of bringing recovery to people who've had such a difficult time or could have potentially such a difficult time is the biggest achievement. And so whether it's been through the plan or whether it's been through Sentinel Events Review or whether it's been through a new Mental Health Act, we've tried to deal do away with a lot of coercion. I think all of those programs, all of those things that we've done, have really had that helping people's lives in mind. One of the traditional and great struggles, I think, for mental health is the attempt to try and achieve parity, I suppose, with physical health. Are we making some progress in that regard, do you think, over the last few years? We're trying very, very hard to make parity. And I think there are a couple of things that I take that down, table roads take that down. One is I think it's really important people to understand that in this country, as through many parts of the world, and very much in the you know, high-income countries, people with serious mental health disorder, so schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, etc., on average die about 20 years younger than the rest of the general population. Some of that, about 15% of that, is related to some of the conditions with the illness, like suicide and so on, but a lot of it's actually just about poor physical health. 
about lifestyle, about things like smoking, diet, obesity, diabetes, some effects of medication and so on. So we really need to turn that around. And if we actually think about it, a lot of the issues facing our physical healthcare systems actually relate to some people's mental health problems. So we actually need to fix that in things like the diabetes clinics and so on. We actually need to, to join. And we've done, we've had a lot more success in joining with the physical healthcare system in doing that. So that's one bit of parity. The other bit of parity, of course, is that in terms of disability, the issues with mental health problems, drug and alcohol problems, are about 13 to 15% of the disability in our community, right? So obviously heart disease and cancer and so on are a bit higher. But in terms of that level of disability and, and cost to society, it's actually quite high. We would say our funding is under 10%, so we think we want parity in funding as well uh, around that. And that's what I'm always talking about with bureaucrats. But it's one of those things where you've got a lot, everybody's got a lot to do, and I'm not really begrudging my colleagues who do so much good work. But obviously, from everybody's point of view, there's so much work to do. We need to, to be smarter, we need to be better funded, and we need to get that engagement with people to get the outcomes. You mentioned a couple of times now, you know, negotiating with bureaucrats and that type of thing. Are you a clinician wearing a bureaucrat's hat these days, or are you a, a bureaucrat wearing a clinician's hat still? Depends which side of the fence I'm on. Um, <laughs> so to the bureaucrats, I tell them I'm a clinician wearing a bureaucrat's hat. To the clinicians, they often say, oh, you've been up there for a while. And I've actually been doing this for 11, 12, actually now my 13th year, I think I've counted up this morning, of being either a chief psychiatrist, but I'm now sort of, I truly am in the sort of bureaucrat's hat. I actually have met a lot of bureaucrats who've come from not just from a clinician background, but who also understand that lived experience. They've got family members, they've been out there in the work, they actually feel for the services that they've supported. So I kind of got over the bureaucrat thing a bit. I, I kind of see us all as working together to support those services. So I think that I have learned a lot of bureaucratic skills. I also tell people, though, that my training as a psychiatrist is probably the best training I ever had for the bureaucracy, training to be a trained psychotherapist and understanding people's motivations and and what they really mean when they're smiling back at you and what you can see underneath the, that stuff. Really quite helpful, actually, but I don't give all those secrets away. I'm starting to feel slightly less comfortable right now as you grin across the table at me. Um, John, those of us lucky enough to work alongside you or work with you, see you as best you can around lunchtime each day, don the hat and uh, leave the building for a constitutional. Um, what, what are your tips for sustaining your own mental health? So, well, that's true. I actually go out for a walk and I try to get my steps up every day. In fact, during COVID, I lifted the, the dial on my phone from ten to 11,000 just to challenge myself to actually get a few more steps in. So I kind of just do what I, what I would always tell people. So when I was a jobbing psychiatrist, I would have a lot of senior people come to me and say, I'm really stressed, I'm feeling depressed. What can I do? And they, they'd think they'd go out with prescription or something. But I was asking the key questions, which are how are you eating? How are you sleeping? How much do you drink? How much exercise are you having? And how are you getting on with people? You know, what, what are your support systems? And we'd have a discussion around that for an hour, hour and a half, and people would go out with a sort of renewed vigour about the things that they needed to do. And just sometimes we might need to do something a bit more than that, but we, you know, there are a few other little tricks with that. But I actually think that the main things to do are to do that. One of the greatest tricks I actually learned when I was a young young registrar was I actually learned about relaxation and I learned about meditation. So I actually teach people to do that as well and get people to go off and just learn that bit of quiet time as well as the exercise. You've got to have a whole lot of different tricks in your bag. It might be a breathing exercise or meditation or exercise or you know being able to turn off or 
have an imagination of a great place that you've been to, just all those tricks you need to have to deal with stress. One of the things that I've learned to do is not get stressed, but to just think, what actions am I going to take? And one of the things I actually do is that if I'm feeling a bit stressed, I actually go back through my own mind about what it is that I haven't done. It's usually that I've actually feeling guilty about something I should have done, something I should have told you or a promise I made to someone that I haven't fulfilled. I think, yeah, that's been nagging at me for a few days and I actually need to stop all this and, and go and sort out what it is that's nagging me so I don't give that, that nag to someone else. So that's what I do amongst many, many other things. You, you probably see me go for a walk. Part of that, of course, is that I now bring a very nice salad for work and I find that if I don't go for a walk, I'll go and buy a cake anyway, so I've still got to try and avoid that sort of thing. John Allen, it's been wonderful to have a a brief chat with you today. We could probably talk for hours about the wonderful achievements and work that the mental health, alcohol and other drugs brands do. We look forward to digging deeper into some of the topics sometime in the future. Indeed. Well, thank you very much. It's been very nice to talk to you as well. Transforming Healthcare is proudly produced by Clinical Excellence Queensland. We love to collaborate, so join the conversation on our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram communities. To learn more about CEQ and our services, visit our website, 